So the scars are, it's almost like the price. The cost of white tears, the suffering behind white tears is not white suffering. Mm. No, it's black suffering. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Welcome, good ancestors, and welcome to today's episode, a journalist, author, and academic who sparked a global conversation on white feminism when her Guardian article, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Color, went viral all around the world. Ruby Hammond's powerful and well-researched book, White Tears, Brown Scars, How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color, was one of my favorite reads this past year, and I was honored to receive an early review copy. I have been recommending it to everyone. This book deeply explores white supremacy, white feminism, and racism in historical colonial contexts all around the world. And then it brings us into the modern day to discuss the significance of events like the 2020 Amy Cooper incident, where cops were called to New York Central Park on Christian Cooper for false racist claims while he was birdwatching. This is a book I want everyone to read, and you'll want to leave this conversation wanting to read it too. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. I am here with the author of the brand new book, White Tears, Brown Scars, Ruby Hammond. Ruby, welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hi, Leila. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to have you. I love your book. I just want to say that first and foremost. Thank you so much for sending me an advanced copy. I have been studying it truly because it is such a well-researched book, a book that not only speaks about the dynamics of white womanhood and white tears, but goes into the history. And I really want to have a conversation about that today. But before we start, our very first question for every guest, who are some of the ancestors, living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey? Mm -hmm. Definitely familial, my sisters and my father. Uh, my sisters are, are very much still alive and my father has uh, passed on and it is a, you know, one of the great, I guess, sadnesses of, I don't, I don't like to talk too much about my family because I, I see it as, you know, I chose a public life, they didn't. Mm. But one of my, my deepest sort of sadnesses is that he, he's not here to kind of see me get my, my stuff together, you know, and start to really take that pride and that love of where I'm from and mm. where he's from, you know, the Middle East. And in terms of sort of my societal ancestors, I'm, I'm not religious, but as a philosopher, um, Imam Ali is probably 
someone that I, I go back to. And in, just in, in terms of what we're speaking about today, I have a little, um, I know I'll forget it, so I'll, I'll read it. It's just a small. Yeah, he says, please. Nothing hurts a good soul and a kind heart more than to live amongst people who cannot understand it. And, you know, when we look at where I'd like to talk about with my book is that so much of people of, of colour during the colonial era, so wherever Europeans colonised, they didn't understand what it was that was in front of them. Mm. And the damage, the damage that has been wrought out of that lack of understanding. And then we also, you know, that quote hits me on a personal level now too because I still see it, as I'm sure you have, and, and others of us who, who write this, this stuff and not even necessarily write it, we, we live it. We say, we think we're saying something that is either, where we're either trying to seek understanding or point out a problem, but we get hit with this as if we're being, as if we're the problem. Right, right. That leads into, you know, what I really wanted to ask you about before we dive into the content of your book. One of the things that really struck me about your story was the similarities that we've had in terms of both being catapulted into the public eye because of writing a viral article about white women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was listening to an interview of yours and you were writing about how you'd written this article how white women use strategic tears to silence women of color for the Guardian in Australia. And first of all, I'm sure that there was some fear or some hesitation or some trepidation on your part before publishing something Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, now we're used to talking about these things like they're normal in the mainstream, but back Mm -hmm. then we weren't, right? And then the other thing is you didn't think it would go beyond Australia and it went far beyond Australia. Yeah, that's exactly on both. Like, you know, it's not to say that it wasn't being written and spoken about in Australia. (laughs) It really kind of, not in the mainstream, definitely not. So I knew that to to write that I would, that there was just going to be a reaction of what is she even talking about? Like, what is she saying? Like, um, She's saying that white women can never get sad or cry. You know, I knew that there would, there would be that. And, and also that because Australia is small and I, I just thought this is going to kind of be like the kiss of death for me in, um, you know, my career and, and in anything, you know, my, my sort of my standing in sort of the, the progressive and, and feminist space. But, you know, so with me, it's like when I feel that something has to be said, I it's kind of like, no, this is important. And I knew instinctively it was really important because, you know, the reaction that I would get from women when I would, you know, before I even wrote the article, I was mm. kind of like, you know, I was looking at my own experience and, and then I, I, would, I would see tweets from black women in, in Canada and, and, and America talking about, you know, experiences they had at work and articles. And, and then I'm like, is this the same thing? Mm. When, when black women are talking about how they're, you're not to say it's the same thing, but, but is it the same dynamic that's causing, you know, is what I'm experiencing related to this, mm-hmm. to what black women, you know, and, and so that's why I shared some tweets that, that I, I read by black women and, and we're you know, talking about a dynamic at work between a black woman and a white woman where Something will happen, the white woman will cry, but she won't be crying because she feels bad. She'll cry because she feels bullied. And I'm like, 
it's this what I've experienced because it seems like it. And so, you know, I shared it with my followers on Facebook because I wanted to see, you know, women of colour in Australia, mm. whether that applied to them too. And that's so key, I yeah. think, because oftentimes other countries that are not American will point the finger at America and say that's where the real yeah. problem is, exactly. but we don't, we don't have a problem here. Absolutely. And Australia right. is very, very guilty of that, of, you know, when we look at police brutality and oh, it's hor- horrible. It's like, it's like quite, you're aware of the, of the violence against, you know, Indigenous people here and in, in the prison system and the carceral system. So there's very much a sense of it's uh, kind of tutting at the problems that the US has with race without looking that we've got our own and more, but there's this real still kind of denial or even that might be like this sort of surface level acceptance but no real effort or a, a willingness to, to really dive into it mm-hmm. so you know that's the process with writing that, that article is you know is, is this what I think it is and how widespread is it because you know it's something that's not enough for me if it's just something that's happened to me it's not quite enough depending on the story and if it, unless you're actually just writing a personal story right Right. You know, if I'm writing something political, I need to see that is what's happened to me indicative of a bigger problem with our society. And that's how that that's how that started. I was quite scared because I just thought it's going to be misunderstood. It's going to be misrepresented. And I was just wasn't expecting uh, to take off as much as it did overseas. Mm. And that's kind of what really it stick. Yeah. You know, you're saying how you wanted to know, is this indicative of a bigger mm. problem? The answer came back clearly. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so many women were like, yep, this has happened to me. Yep. This is, I was like, how is this happening to like almost every woman of color? And we're actually, we're actually not talking about it. We're not. Right. We so were. that's the really interesting part, right? Because mm. we are universally experiencing it and yet white women women who have white privilege are unaware that it's even happening so how is that happening you know there's the book racism without racists how is racism happening yet there are no people who are enforcing the racism yeah it's exactly that it's like we all recognize that racism is a problem and yet you know, even Donald Trump will say, I'm the least racist for, well, then who is like, where who is, is the, the most racist? racist? Yeah. I would love to know. Or even, and like, so where is, uh, is there a hierarchy of racism? It's quite bizarre. But, and so, you know, because we, we do look at racism as a moral failing or as sim- as only a moral failing, you know, other people have been about this, including Robin D'Angelo, and rather than an institutional structural problem that was deliberately mm-hmm created in order to maintain power differentials and and, and power structures. You use the word strategic in that article. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that was really important. And as I explored your book, it became even more clear to me why that word was the right word, strategic, that this is not the exception to the rule. It's not an accident. It doesn't happen sometimes or with certain kinds of people. It's actually what the norm is as opposed to what just happens every now and then. How did you come to that realization? And I know you've done deep research, which is laid out Mm -hmm. in the book, but what were the breadcrumbs that you were following? 
I'm taking my mind back to when I first wrote the article, How Are You? I know it's in the title, but how, you know, I don't write the title, but how I used it in the article was it's the strategy. Yeah, so it's a strategy. It's a move, a tactical move of, okay, I put myself in the white woman's position here. It's okay, I'm being challenged or I'm being disagreed with or I'm being embarrassed or called out. I don't like this feeling. I need to recalibrate. I need to get my position, which is above this woman of colour, even though we never really talk about it. I am above her because this society says I am. How do I rebalance? And that's a strategy that has been offered to white women or given to white women as a, you know, due to the history of how Western society developed mm. as a result throughout the colonial era, which, you know, also then went back to the metropole, right? So what was happening in the colonies um, went back and, and affected what was happening in Europe. And so the strategy is that white women in white society beginning in the colonial era had this dual role as they needed to be protected from the indigenous and, and enslaved populations, you know, the savages. And they, at the same time, because of that, that role of, of protector, they also needed to be subordinated or deferential to men. So they have this role as, as both protector of or, or protected from the brown and black masses. But then they also have this civilizing role of white men where they have they're meant to sort of subdue the white man's sort of wild and, and, and base instincts, right? Because this moral, virtuous white woman. And so sort of translates obviously like we're not thinking about all this. This this has just been passed on down to us and it's become part of the invisible system that we all live in and, and don't. So it's the um, white women have been afforded and protection as long as it's not from white men, right? That's where it falls down, right? Right. Yeah. This is the key part. So this is something that, you know, obviously as somebody who is a writer in this work and a student as well, one of the things that I found that really I had an aha moment for the first time about a nuance here in these relationships is oftentimes we look at what is the relationship between white women and women of color. But as I was reading your book, I was like, wow, look at the relationship between white women and white men mm -hmm. and how a lot of the violence that is enacted on black and brown people, it flows out from the really messed up dynamics between white women and white men, not just from the regards of white men have privilege as males and they are enacting mm -hmm. that privilege, but also the ways in which white women have used their position as not being in the same position as white men, but not being in the same position as people of color to kind of play both sides, right? Being both the victim of the violence of white male privilege but also the upholders of white male privilege exactly, and white privilege. And there was something so sick about it as I continued to read 
you know, some of the things that I'm thinking about were the stories about how, in fact, you had a really great quote that I want to share, which was about lynchings. Mm -hmm. And you said lynching in the United States was driven partly by the fear of interracial relationships between white women and black men and the impact that mixed race offspring would have on white supremacy. Right? So it, it wasn't really about we need to protect white women because there were white women who were, I would say, forcing themselves on black men because it's there's a power dynamic during those times where they were not on equal uh, terms. No. They are in quote unquote relationships or forcing themselves upon uh, black men and, and men of color, indigenous men, right? And yet the lynchings were said to be about protecting white womanhood, protecting the purity of white women, protecting them from being raped by these black brutes, quote unquote. But really it was about, we cannot let the white race be marred. We cannot let interracial relationships happen because the more mixed race people we have, the less white power we're going to have. That's exactly right. You know, Ida Wells was writing at the time, the black journalist who was documenting the, the lynchings and who was quite derided in her time for it, of course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> again, the kind-hearted soul that is misunderstood or not understood in, in, in her time. I mean, she, you know, she had a lot of respect in her time, but she also was, was very, yes, was highly degraded. Because she reported on it, that the lynchings, and she was adamant this is not about protecting. They keep saying it's about protecting the women and it's not. So, so she went, would go in, was talking about the, the economic, the fear that white men and white society had a free black population that mm. would, would be able to challenge them economically, that would be able to, to threaten. Because you think about it, they know an identity built first on dispossession of the Indigenous people and their land and then built on this slavery and, and then that. So it's an identity of superiority. Yes. And when you take that away, they didn't know who they were anymore. So right. there was massive pushback. And so it all sort of became, you know, like the white woman's body was like that this terrain that that was fought on of We'll protect her and we'll project our own fears and violence back on, onto black men and black women and by saying that they're trying to hurt our, our women, our quote-unquote women. Right. Well, it's so, it's so incredible to see how something that we, that may be a situation at work, right, where strategic white woman tears are being yeah, used or back, yeah. the example of Amy Cooper in the park, right, like how mm -hmm. these seemingly just like isolated incidents are actually just a repeat of what has happened throughout history. It isn't something that's just happening now. It has deep historic links and those historic links are about power. Absolutely. Yeah. And you see with Amy Cooper is a great example. I mean, that happened after I wrote the book, but for those who may not know, so she's a, a white woman walking her park in a, the dog park in, in a Brooklyn park or Central Park, was it? A park in New York. And there was a, a black man bird watching. And we don't see their initial 
sort of altercation or conflict, but, but when the footage starts, so the man was filming it and we just see her saying, I'm going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening me and my dog. Bam. Like, mm-hmm. that's the strategy. Like, that's what I'm, I'm talking about, that, that power of she knows that history is just recalled it without having to say it all. Uh, she's recalled this history of, I know, we both know, right? She's telling him, we both know that all I have to do is snap my fingers like this and say that a black man is trying to hurt me. We know what's going to happen to you, don't we? So that's really such a good example of what I, I talk about of that dynamic. And so I call it the damsel in distress, the damsel in defence. So mm-hmm. we have this damsel in distress and its protection, but then she becomes a damsel in defence of white society because that's what in that situation Amy Cooper was doing. She was defending, in attacking him, defending the system that white slavery and, and colonialism and, and white society had set up, which would just, you know, come down on the bodies of black men and black women and, and brown women as well, but in that particular situation, come down the body of, of a black man because he wasn't doing what she wanted him to, what she mm. told him to, because he was not fulfilling, you know, his role on this sort of this racial hierarchy that, that whiteness had built. And, and so that dynamic is what happens between white women and women of colour is reflective of that. It's part of that. It's that same, you know, white women are able to, to lean in to the privileges that their race gives them, even though Western feminism, white feminism is predicated pretty much solely on gender oppression so that's why we have you know women of color have such a hard time getting white women and white feminists especially to to see because they that where we're coming from because western feminism and white feminism it's not developed in a way that acknowledges that race that racial privilege conferred on white women um, because of the actions of white men how is it that something that I'm thinking about, right, is using Amy Cooper as an example, but really any white woman who has ever used their tears in this way, ever used their strategy, no one has ever sat them down to talk to them about, this is a strategy that you can use. Yeah, yeah, it's not a conspiracy. Right, (laughs) but yet it's called upon with such ease, almost as if it's been there lodged in the back of the Mm. mind the whole time. How is this passed down? That's something that I've really been thinking about, you know, because of social media and the rise of technology, we're seeing more and more of these videos of so-called barbecue Becky and, you know, park Becky and all of these white women using white tears, but it comes up so easily. And yet outside of that situation where they feel that, where they feel or believe that they are threatened as vulnerable white women, they may look at another white woman doing that and say, I would never do that. But yet when they're in that situation, it comes forth so easily. How is that passed down? You know, this is a podcast about ancestors. Their ancestors use this same technique over and over again. Yeah. So this is obviously a hard question to answer in with full authority because I'm not there 
I'm not around white people when there's only white people. So mm-hmm. I don't know, right? I don't know exactly how everything that is said. But, you know, I don't think it's that's taught. It's like, okay, so when a black woman does this um, right. or a brown woman does this, this is what you do. I think that it's we, um, we receive these messages that we absorb. And that's why I speak a lot about pop culture in the book because yes. pop culture is a big way that that's done. And high culture as well, like opera. I talk about opera a little bit. Um, so it's a way in which messages are repeated again and again. And, and so when I think about, okay, so how do white women know? I'm like, well, how do I know as an Arab woman, as a brown woman, how do I know when I can't push something any further, right? Because this is a, there's, I implicitly know that, okay, this isn't going to work well for me. Like if I push this further, people are not going to believe me. They're not going to see my side, right? So I instinctively know that, that no one had to sit down and tell me. Yes. Right? And I think that the same goes. We know of these, it's just this unspoken. And I would say recognising a lot of us because I didn't sort of, you know, I wasn't really fully aware, but like I just kind of something that I, I guess accepted. I'd be like, oh, I know that. If I could give an example, like when I was in New York and, and you know, without going into details, there was this massive sort of fallout between my two roommates and then I got dragged into it. And then there were both white, white women, but one of them was quite a, you know, very, very younger and petite. And I, um, so she's saying to me, um, I want to call the police on, you know, so then on the other one. And I'm just like, let's not involve the police, please. And then she's like, well, why are you upset with me? She's, are you turning against me too? Or maybe I should call the police on both of you. And I just stopped and I went, and I knew, like, mm. nothing is actually going on. So first of all, like, she'd be wasting the police's time. But I just knew, I'd like, oh, wow, if police get called here and there's this younger white girl with her big sad eyes crying, there's no way in the world that they'll believe me and, and that's what I'm talking about. We know right. instinctively that because we know that, you know, we grow up in a society that we know that we are devalued. And I, as an Arab woman, I, you know, I was 13 when I was first called a terrorist. This is well before 9-11. Mm. So that's always been there. So there's always been this, this scepter of, of that we're violent, that we don't fit in, we don't belong here, and that we could just sort of turn at any moment. Um, so these are all the messages. And, and that's why I speak about sort of the different races and, and the background to how they've been. And I don't try to give a history of each race, but it's a history, a brief history of how the, each race has been represented yes. by, by the West. And it's, those are two different things. Yeah. I really appreciated that. There were some tropes that you pulled out, which some of mm. them I know from just because we are aware of them. So for example, as a black woman, uh, African-American, I'm aware of the tropes of the mommy, of the Sapphire, of the Jezebel, even if I didn't have specific names for them like that, I know what those tropes are. I've seen them, I've experienced them and so on. But what I really appreciated in your book, and I'm just pulling them up here, is you also broke down what are some of those tropes for women of other cultures. And there was, was like two sides where there was the sexualized side. And then on the flip side of that was the angry or aggressor side. So for example, right, with Black women, we're aware of the sexualized Jezebel 
And then the other side is the sapphire. So the angry black woman, the sassy black woman. But I hadn't heard of this idea of black velvet for Aboriginal women in Australia Mm. and the princess Pocahontas of Native American women, the China doll of East Asian women, that these are tropes, stereotypes that are used to sexualize and stereotype and really limit women of color in this way. And then the flip side of that, for East Asian women, the dragon lady, for Latina women, the spicy sex pot. And in each time, it's like in each stereotype or in each trope, it limits us in a different way each time, whether we are expressing our authentic feelings of anger or expressing our sexuality in authentic ways, we're not allowed access to that because of the trope that we're going to be put into. Yeah, exactly. So when, if we are, you know, expressing sexuality, then it's like, oh yeah, see, they're easy, they're they're this, they're that. And then of course the angry ones. That's once the real kicker now because it, it just, it invalidates. Anger is rewritten as a, this irrational, intrinsic, volatile characteristic that black and, and brown women have rather than maybe we're angry because of how we're treated. And anger is the only logical response here. Yes. And, and what I found fascinating when I dug into that history like I wanted to, to look at and discuss the key stereotypes sort of limiting each woman of colour. What I was not expecting was how similar they were, they're different, but similar in the sense of they served the same purpose. Yes. But, but they were just applied because differently, right? So Indigenous women and Black women felt the full brunt of it because a, it was Indigenous women, it's their land that was being taken. So it was like they were here trying to wipe them out and, and then yes. Black women because they were enslaved. But essentially they're all about positioning, you know, the racialized woman as permissive and as not only not uh, saying no to white men but seeking it out. Right. And that, that was a metaphor for, and you know, Edward Said, who's another ancestor I, I look up to. So he... um said that, that it's a metaphor for the surrendering of their land, right? You surrender the woman's sexuality, you surrender their land. It's like, and that is really encompassed very well in the Princess Pocahontas myth, right? Where, where she, she's just like, so yes, the white man, come and take me. It's like basically saying, come and take this land. I recognize I am the peacemaker, but I'm a peacemaker in a way that I, you know, I recognize the superiority of your ways and the virility of your men, right? So over mine. And, you know, and then you just think, well, you know, so what? That's just a representation. But these are enacted upon. Right. And they're repeated again and again and again to the point where that's just what people think you know, an Indigenous woman is or an Indigenous man is. That's just what people think an Arab person is either a terrorist or a religious fanatic. Right, whether they know they think that or not, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. These are just implicitly um, accepted and then they're replicated and, you know, this dynamic plays out in our day-to-day interaction. So so that's what I was trying to show in this book is that what we encounter in our day interaction is not only reflective of our society but of history. Yeah, and, and so each sort of the race of, of women has like the you know the angry, 
And then there's others within them, but so the two main archetypes are binary. So you have the, you know, the, the sexually permissive and promiscuous, and then you have the angry. So they correspond to the, the stage of colonialism, right? Because early colonialism was about spreading out, you know, spreading the empire. Yeah. And so the women and then therefore the whole culture was positioned as being like, yeah, come and take it, you know, and then where the anger comes out, like the angry stereotype, you know, the dragon lady and the, the angry black woman is when colonised people began organising and resisting abolition mm-hmm. in the US. When, and so as, as the colonised were resisting, then it was just that was when they were like, all right, okay, we're going to project our violence back onto them and say that they're attacking us, even yeah. though they're actually, they're actually, they were just resisting. So that's when, the, and that's how we're still seen and limited today as women of colour, we're expected, it may not be uh, necessarily sexual, but it's that same sort of, we're expected to be permissive and placating, not put up a fight and just accept what's given, given and just be like, oh, okay. You know best what's right. Uh, for yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I won't, Oh, you want to take my work and say it's yours? Okay, well, I can't, you know, but you stand up for yourself. Whoa. Right. What's this? Why are you attacking me? Where is this? So it's like. Where is this coming from? Right. We're in this position where we're either expected to live a life where we can't contribute, we can't live as full members of society. Mm -hmm. But when we start. Because when we start asserting ourselves, that it's very, very quickly spun as we're being aggressive, we're being, we're, we're provoking, we're being irrational. So yeah, we're, we're still still boxed at how I put it. We're boxed into this binary. We're still in that of having to either just be supplicants or any attempt to be like, no, I deserve to be, you know, live the full expression of my humanity is. It's like, no, not you. You can't. It's reframed as angry. And that, again, goes back to the way in which white society developed in the colonies, which is its entire identity was built on on differentiating itself, first of all, from the people colonised and then the people that get brought over and then the people that immigrated because they were getting away from the colonialism in their own countries, right? right. So it's this constant uh, process of, of reiterating difference and superiority mm. based on that difference. And so when I applied that to feminism, I'm like, well, how can we have a sisterhood when we haven't acknowledged that that binary that why society placed between itself and everybody else is replicated in spaces where there's just women and that, you know, sort of that, that strategy that I talk about where they lean into that. They lean into this their own archetype of the damsel in distress of, oh, why, you know, help. And, and so all these hundreds of years of, you know, the white, innocent white woman in need of protection, that has, it's just become part of, of our society and, and to the point where when a white woman, unless, as I said, unless, <laughs> unless the culprit is, is a white man. a white man. man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, in some cases, yes, she's believed when, when he's particularly egregious, but when it's her husband, and that's why, you know, domestic violence is not taken seriously. If she alleges sexual assault and the man, you know, the white man is a powerful man or a man who's a good father, you know, so all these things are like, or even, you know, when violent men 
kill their entire family. It's still like spoken of many times, and in Australia it definitely is, of, oh, it's so sad, oh, he must have been going through such a hard time. It's like maybe, but to take, every, like there's, there's, there's right. an element of power there and, and there's this extreme violence. Right. We still have this trouble accepting as much as we can accept that brown and black people can be violent to the point where their position is violent when they're not being violent. Mm. The flip side is that white men, even when they are being violent, are reframed as just being like, oh, it must be so hard for him. Right. There's a quote that stood out for mm. me in your book. White people set the standard for humanity by which they and only they could succeed. And, you know, you talk a lot in the book about the construction of white womanhood and how, how that white supremacy has defined womanhood as white womanhood. And so there is no sisterhood because we are not the same as them, not because intrinsically we're not the same as them, biologically we're not the same as them, no, but because they have created a world in which they are different to us, they are superior to us, they are the standard of womanhood by which we are supposed to measure ourselves up against. The closer that we can bring ourselves to that, the better, but we will never be them. And so how can there be a sisterhood on that basis? You know, so many women of color, so many black women, myself included, have been asked to put talk of race aside. You're being divisive when you talk about Mm -hmm. racism. Let's band together under our shared struggle of sexism. And uh, one of the activists, I think she was a poet that you spoke about in the book was Frances Harper and how in 1866 at the 11th National Women's Rights Convention um, in New York with a crowd that included Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, she spoke up to the white woman and she said, this is what the situation is. And so we've been saying this for a very, very, very long time. And yet there are still repeated calls, put race aside. We are sharing the struggle of sexism. Her story amazed me. Like if I could feel, like I said, I felt scared to write what I wrote in 2018 in Australia. Imagine being a black woman in 1866, standing up at the Women's Rights Convention where white women don't even have the vote yet and telling them, basically saying, listen, until you recognise and account for and change the way you treat us as the ongoing treatment of of black women, including, you know, in the North, yes, you don't have slavery. It's just say you don't have slavery here anymore, but I still can't get on a streetcar and ride with you. And when I get on a streetcar, a white woman will get off. Right. So she says to them, you know, you speak of rights. I'm actually speaking of wrongs and I'm, I'm saying that you have something to do with this. Mm. The way that my life is as a black woman, which is I, I encourage everyone to seek out that speech. It's not that long and it's on the internet. It's, it's Francis Harper. We are all bound up in one great lump of humanity. I should have said lump. She was much more poetic than that. <laughs> but, but one great bundle of humanity. Uh-huh. And so it's exactly what she's saying. It's what we now call intersectionality, right? right. It's always been there just because it has this term now. Like, and I'm not downplaying Kimberly Crenshaw's work at, at all, but the point is that it's black women, especially, and then through, you know, black women, other women of color in the West have also started to speak up. It, it's a, look, you know, it's not that we don't want a real sisterhood, but until you acknowledge and you see your role, mm 
in the racism we feel that how can we fight equally against sexism as sisters? And so that goes back to that long ago, 1866, it's just to say, listen, white women, until you recognise your role in, in all of this, you can get the vote, but, but it's actually, it's not going to change everything. Mm. It's not going to change anything. And she's right. No, you know. Yes. One of the stories that you shared in your book was the story of Lisa Benson. And I was really happy to see a recent talk with her. Yes. Yeah. Can you share about that? And so Lisa Benson is a Black woman journalist, shared your article with her co-workers and what happened. Yeah. So she's, she was on contract as a, a journalist in Kansas City at a TV station. So, and so she'd been working at the station for 14 years. So she was already going through a hard time to the point where she'd actually already filed a racial discrimination lawsuit against her employer. She was still working there at the time. So she shared that article that they would understand what she's going through of, of, of how their behaviour was affecting her. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the way that it was received was, oh, you're being racist against white women, right? You're bullying white women. And so, so even when we're just talking about being bullied, we're still reframed as bullies, right? So she, she was suspended right away and then terminated from her contract as a result of sharing that article on her Facebook page because it was, quote, unquote, created a hostile work environment based on race and gender or race and sex. Which, pause there. I mean, what did they yeah. think that they had created for her? Exactly. Right. Well, this is the thing. Like they knew what they were creating for her and, right. and it was un- untenable for her. But, you know, why, you know, what I've discovered or realised, not discovered, what I've realised is that so much of white society and Western society and white society is, it's the pretense. It's not about what you really are. It's what you can present yourself as being, right? So if a company can say, well, look, we've got some black people, we've got some Indian people, we're diverse, we've got women, you know, as long as you can present yourself as being something, then you don't have to really be that. So she was really not just dissatisfied with her work, she was hurt, she was upset, she was frustrated. She's worked for 14 years, wouldn't, didn't get a promotion, and even though she'd won an Emmy for her coverage of Barack Obama's inauguration so you can't say she, she didn't have the talent or the skills or the work ethic she'd put her hand up for all the um you know the weekend shifts that nobody wanted so she was doing the work but not getting the reward and I'm sure a lot of women of color watching will will recognize that and so she shared that article and yeah she got terminated and just sort of what friends she'd still had there were kind of gone by a point so she was feeling really isolated and that's when she contacted me and yeah of course I was horrified so I I did all I could to to get her story out there and did take off on the internet but yeah yeah and and in listening to your recent conversation with her you know it was really interesting hearing about how it was hard for you to get the word out that people were not wanting to pick up the story not wanting Mm. to report on this really important story about how a white woman who had shared an article about white women tears had those same white women tears used against her. Yeah. So that's the thing. It was a, a black woman shared it. And even beyond that, so I was trying to, I was, you know, as I'd been in the media for 10 years at that point or more. So we're talking about a black journalist who lost her job 
for sharing an article about racism written by an Australian journalist, Australian writer, how is that not a story to you? So mm-hmm. the only outlet that picked it up was National Indigenous Television. So, again, that's, you know, and I big shout out for that solidarity and support. And not only that, for recognising that this was a true story, like a real story. Right. Because, because at the time, and these stories are still, you know, this is still going on, journalists are uh, about freedom of the press and, and um, journalism is not a crime. So all these sort of like, you know, don't punish journalists for doing their job. So how does this not fit into that discourse? Of how is it, how is it separate? How is it something? Yeah, they, and it was just completely ignored and I was just like, right, okay, so A, you don't care um, about what's happened to this journalist even though you sort of say that you care about all journalists and B, I'm your colleague and I've been working alongside you for all these years, a decade. Thank you for really showing me with no more sort of ifs, ands or buts exactly mm-hmm. what you think of me, that you didn't, wouldn't even pick up the story and not even on a blog post or like as, as in the website of the newspaper. You know, so, yeah, that was a real, I wouldn't say wake-up call because I had suspected as such, otherwise I wouldn't have been writing the book because at that point I was already writing the book, but I was kind of like, I was losing kind of a faith or, or, you know, but what happened with Tulisa really galvanised me to like, no, I've really got to keep going with this. Keep going, yeah. And so, you know, fortunately for Lisa, you know, the funny thing with that is that her lawyer, who's just, you know, this middle-aged white man in her court case, because she was already filed for discrimination and then she filed for retaliation. So she said when they fired her that, that they didn't fire her because my article was offensive. They fired her to retaliate against the lawsuit that she'd already brought against mm. them. So he stood in court with this big blown up printout of my article. And I'm just trying to imagine, I wish I was there. <laughs> so you have this older white man explaining this concept of white, <laughs> white women's tears to this court, US court of law. And uh, that's incredible. What? She won that part of her case. So she lost the discrimination That's case. That's amazing. Right. Mm. She lost that case, but she won the retaliation case. So, wow. you know, in a sense like that, she was able to get some justice. She was able to get some vindication. Of, right. So because, you know, and I was horrified at first. I went from thinking I've completely, I've completely ruined this woman's life to being like, wow, okay. So my article in the end, it did help her get some validation and and, yeah. and just to be and justice and you know for her to keep going you know and that's what she said to me like it's because as other women of color would know and you'd know it's so isolating and and yes a problem is when you are a woman of color who who starts to assert herself you're not only targeted by white society you'll you'll often very quickly be abandoned by other people of color sadly because mm. they're afraid right they're afraid that if they stick up for you, or then they'll be next. They will be impacted, and and this is the even more nuanced understanding that we have to like open ourselves up to, right? Which is how we as people of color become complicit in white supremacy as a survival tactic, as a way of self protection, 
as a way of maybe not having the language. And this is why I feel like your book is so important and books like this are so important because they give wider context. They give historical understanding. They join the dots together so that you can understand that it is a strategy. It is about power. It is not a one-off thing. It's not a personal thing. It's systemic and it's endemic. And I know for myself, having read your book, you know, one of the ancestors that I was thinking about, living ancestors still, that I was thinking about as I was reading your book, that your book really was reminiscent to me of when I read Bell Hooks's Ain't I a Woman? And I know you quote her in the book, but I remember reading that book and thinking every person needs to read this book because without this understanding, this historical context, what's happening now doesn't make much sense or seems like it shouldn't still be here. Yeah. And that's why I quote and like I I wanted to quote or at least reference as many women, uh, black women and and brown women and Asian women as I could Mm -hmm. to show that we've been, Indigenous women have been writing about this for a long time and also to show how deep and long this history runs. Yes. And I... um, a widow could her book is fantastic by the way and and i a woman but you know like i had so many quotes in my book at first i still do but but my editor was like in australia it wasn't so much of a problem because they're all short quotes but even my editor in the u.s she's like there's too many quotes in here you'll have to rephrase it i'm like how can there be too many quotes they have to credit you know what i mean you got it and it has been, and this is something you... It's an issue about copyright. Yeah. Right. I think you've spoken about this or written about it in the book, was that as you began doing your research on this book, you know, you found there are so many books about these different dynamics mm. that we have been writing about it for many, many years. We've been talking about it for, for decades, for centuries, truly. And yet we're in 2020 and there are still people who say, I didn't know. I had no idea. That's it. That's part of the whole racial privilege of, of that they have that, of not having to know or not having to interrogate what they see around them because that's something that I've got a lot of, of you know, I saw this but I didn't, didn't know what was happening, you know. Right. I couldn't place it in, in context of what was going on, yeah. um, that it wasn't. It wasn't just a conflict between these two women that something was happening here right? where the racial dynamics of our society and the power dynamics of our society were being played out. Mm. And you do share a lot of history in the book, but you also do share mm-hmm. a lot of current day stories of real life women and their experiences mm. with these tools of white supremacy. You had the story of, I think her name was Danai in the book, who was, I believe, a mm. Zimbabwean uh, immigrant to mm-hmm. Australia, Australia and her issues in the workplace. And then Zaina, a Palestinian Canadian woman who had her hair repeatedly touched in the workplace And when she spoke out about it, was told that she was the aggressor to the white woman. These are everyday stories that women of color are experiencing and carrying with them. And the book is called White Tears, Brown Scars. Like, let's talk about the brown scars. What are the scars, the black and brown scars that we're carrying around with us? Yeah. So, I mean, I said I said brown scars in the title. 
well, for brevity, um, and also because I'm, you know, I'm Arab, so I sort of put myself in the brown, you know, ra- racial uh, terminology and language. As we know, it's not perfect. It's not the size. Yeah, my because- my son said to me the other day because <laughs> he's still getting his head around. Mm. identities of like why are you saying we're black or they're white when that isn't the color of our skin exactly yeah i know know. right he's six he's six years old it makes perfect sense he said to me out of nowhere the other day he said you know mama i know how you know if you're black and he said i said how do you know he said if your skin is brown you are black Mm. (laughs) i said yes true So he's still so, finding the nuance, but, and you talk about this at the beginning of the book, right? Yeah. I set that out of, of mm-hmm. my, you know, I just, you know, I know these, these terms are not precise, even in something like women of color. And I use that in the sort of the subtitle and, but it's, I say that at the start, I'm not saying that we're all, you know, to say that we're of color, that's not an identity in itself. Right. right? That's just a, it's just, it's really a political terminology. Right. And it kind of flattens our experiences and doesn't, it does. right. When you're using it in, in instances where you really should be more specific. So that's right. right. That's why I, so throughout the book, and that's why I do talk about all the different archetypes. So, cause yes. there are, so when we say, you know, example I give is that if we're talking, if we're in Australia, if we're talking about police brutality and incarceration and deaths in custody, we can't say that that's a, a POC issue, a people of colour issue. That's an Indigenous issue. That's a Black right. Australian. Right? right. So there are absolutely instances where it's not appropriate to say people of colour. Where it's appropriate to say women of colour or people of colour is when you're when you're talking in general terms of, yes, you know, so white women, this concept of, of white women weaponising their, their tears or weaponising their femininity is something that affects all non-white people so I can say that but yeah when you're talking about dispossession and that's that's an indigenous issue so right that's how I I try to navigate that and it's definitely and it's a shame that maybe we haven't been reiterating what a term like that actually means and when it's appropriate to use it and when it's not yes but you know again we could come up with another term right and I think the the thing to understand about it is it's still it's still not representative of the fact that we are actually just one race, right? So when we're yeah. talking about races, it is political, it is yeah. a social concept, and it talks about the ways that we are impacted or not impacted by systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. But that is changeable over time as well, because who is white gets changed over time and so on and so forth. Yeah. But this idea of the scars that we carry, one thing that I know is that those scars are often invisible to white people. So the idea of the white is around scars. So I say brown in the title, but yes, it's brown and black. It's, I say brown because I, I don't feel at liberty to say black in the title of the book when I'm yes. not black. Right. So that's where I took kind of poetic license there to say in this title only. Right. I'm saying I'm saying brown to A, let you know where I am in this whole sort of racial scheme of things and also to apply to all people of colour. But, yeah, so the scars are, it's almost like the price, the cost of white tears, the suffering behind white tears is not white suffering. Mm. No, it's black suffering. It's indigenous right. suffering. 
suffering and it, it's, it's brown suffering, but it's also our resistance, right? And so I chose the word scars deliberately because, you know, when I was going through it, it was like brown pain, brown trauma, brown tear. And I'm like, no, all of these, not brown tears, brown wounds, you know. So it's coming up with all these words, but scars to me was the best because, A, it, it's a sign of, yeah, you've, there's been a trauma, a physical or mental trauma, a wound has happened, something yes. has happened, but there's a resilience and there's a, there's a, right. a healing that's obviously never quite healed, you know, until we really truly reckon with it. Um, it can't, but we're able, we keep going. Right. And then it becomes part of your character being a part of you. Yeah, you, know, you get used to that. But yeah, so so that's what the scars is meant to. Um, but yeah, it's the suffering, you know, is is born from the or experienced by the black and the brown and the indigenous and the victimhood is claimed by whiteness. I think as well, you spoke about the scars resilience, and I hadn't thought about it from that perspective actually. But what I was thinking about is how you know when you have a scar, like you hurt yourself real bad, maybe as a kid, and you still have that scar now as an adult, right? That's a physical sign on your body, like not to do something like that ever again. Mm. I think those scars really are the reminder to us oftentimes that okay, it's not safe to be around white women, or it's not safe to be fully ourselves around white women, here's the proof, right? Here's how I got hurt. And yet we're also expected to act as if those scars don't exist. Yeah. Or that they're, it's healed. Oh, whatever. It's, you know, it's over. Get over it. How we can get that. But right. it's still there. I can see it. And every time I look at it, I remember. Yeah, I keep going, but I remember. Right. What's been done. And I know the consequences if I do it again. And if I have to live this way, then I'm not, again, I'm not being allowed to live in my full humanity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but you know what? Like, you know, and I don't want to be like, oh, well, white people suffer too, but they've been deprived of their humanity because of this, because they can't be their full human self. Right. If they're, they can only, you know, if it has to come at our expense. Right. You know, what, what's something that's happening here is there's been some sacred trees in Victoria. So sacred to the Japurong people, the Japurong women especially. So they're birding trees, ancient birding trees. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just magnificent. And they want to build a highway. The, 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 the Victorian state government wants to lengthen, uh, widen the highway. So the Japurong women have been fighting to to save these trees, but they chopped they chopped one down yesterday. And they did it when it was the final day of, of the lockdown in Melbourne. So Melbourne's been going through a really harsh lockdown because of COVID. So on the day that the lockdown was eased and everyone was celebrating, this not only magnificent and beautiful, but you know, speaking of ancestors, like that's an ancestor too. Yes. Indigenous people. So, look, you know, I'm getting emotional. I can't even comprehend how the immense loss and tragedy of that. So, uh, that's a scar, and that that is that to me is indicative of the humanity that whiteness has lost. Mm. Because how you can justify that for the sake of a more efficient highway? There's no 
saying or A, you're celebrating because you're in the lockdown. We're all in this together, yay. And then also, Mm. you know, you say that we're all learning more about our history, the long history of of the cultures or the Indigenous cultures that were here before colonisation and recognising, you know, the land and which people were on which land and that they're still there and they're still here. So you're, you're saying that, but at the same time, like that's talking the talk. That's the facade, right? right? That's what I was talking about earlier. Right. That's you presenting yourself. But that violence. Yes. And it is violence. It, it is. Absolutely. It's, it's, yes. it's violence and it's cultural vandalism, environmental vandalism, and so completely unnecessary. You know, so when I say that whiteness has cost white people their humanity, to me, that's part of that because someone in in touch with their humanity is going to recognize you know all the the history and the the people and the indigenous people and the women and the pleas and and it's like this this is a part of us yes you know say you say that you're reconciliation and treaty with us yeah this action is showing that you really don't and and that to me that adds another layer of, of the tragedy and the sadness and I'm like that we're not allowed to live, we as in people of colour, of our full expression of humanity because it's perceived as threatening. Right. And at the same time, because of whiteness, uh, white society and many white people have lost their humanity because they're able to just so casually enact this kind of violence. And it's mm. the word, you know, spiritual violence has been coming to me since you've been speaking, that to do that is an act of spiritual violence as well. And One of the concepts that you talked about in the book that I just hadn't heard talked about this way was this, like, there were three three different archetypes you used. One, I think, may have been one that you created, and then two you quoted. So the great white mother, Mm -hmm. Margaret D. Jacobs talked about maternal colonialism, and Barbara Ramasek talked about maternal imperialism. And all of these are terms which speak to the maternalistic role that white women in colonial times played mm-hmm. in the kidnapping, abduction, taking of children of color and indigenous children from their mothers, which to me is a form of spiritual violence to remove a child from their mother in these so called good intentions of rescuing these children from what I don't know from their so-called wretchedness as indigenous people this is yet another layer of this spiritual violence yeah and again that's that hasn't been accounted or or even acknowledged in that it, it's you know when we try to talk about ways in women of color to attempt to talk about uh, the role that white women have played it's like well don't blame us for what men did and it's like no 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 White women have always played a more proactive role. They weren't just sitting by. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in the case of um, in the Indigenous child removal, so Margaret Jacobs, because she talks about uh, the parallels between Indigenous removals in the US and in Australia, and in Australia in particular, yes, it was the men in the politicians that, that were signing off. Right. Like, yep. But the people who were actually going and taking the children were mostly the white, white, white women. So the actual physical 
take in them. Act, right. right. So, so that's not just like, oh, well, it's what the men did. That's where this tension up because of the role and because of the history of how white women were subordinated by white men because white women are always, you know, because their feminism is, is only sort of centred around gender. That's yes. all they see and, and that's all they see and focus on how the women back then were treated by the white men but so they don't they don't expand it to be like well then how did the white women then replicate that dynamic with the the colonized populations and that's one of the ways in which they did it which that they fully and enthusiastically supported racial like segregation and indigenous removals and racial superiority yeah And we see that even today, right? So we're talking about these are terms that are about, you know, colonial times, but we see it, for example, in the way that white teachers treat black kids and kids of color in the dynamics in, um, you know, foster care, in the dynamics in adoption, in so many, so many situations in which this role of the great white mother who's going to rescue black and brown children from their parents, from their own culture, because that is something lesser than, and they are giving them a better chance, apparently, Mm -hmm. and that they were supposed to be grateful for it, that this is something that we're supposed to be grateful for. So I guess what I'm wondering is if white people were not so concerned about us and controlling us or proving that they are superior to us in some way, what would they do with that energy? And what could they do with that energy that would be productive, that would be helpful, that would give them back their humanity, that would allow us to have our own humanity? It's about um, how I put it is that it's, in a sense, it's, I'm asking or challenging white women to take that leap of faith of if I can give up the sense of superiority, even though I might not see it that way, um, I might just see it as being my rights, you know, to be the one that's first up the ladder, right? But if they can to take that leap of faith of that we can be there to catch them as well because even though, you know, I get pushed back against the work I do as, as you've done and other women of colour and black women especially have done, everything I know that we do is we're not giving up on white people. We're asking them to actually really be one people. So for me, it's like take that leap of faith of that you'll give up what, you've been conditioned to believe is your entitlement and your right and that there's something about you that is special because you're white and see what the possibilities are of a deeper connection with other people and with yourself. Right. Because I think, I think that's so key because in this journey for me, it's really made it clear to me where my internalized inferiority has been, where my internalized Mm. white supremacy against myself has been, my internalized anti-blackness. And so in me doing my healing work, the more that I continue to do that, the more I'm like, I'm actually fine. I don't need you to do this work for me because I know I am a human being. I know Mm -hmm. I'm a whole human being. I know that you don't need to recognize me in order for me to know that. But the fact of the matter is I still have to deal with your racism, even though I know who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. And so 
in doing this work, like in the work that I do, which is very much centered on guiding people with white privilege through this process of looking in the mirror, seeing that they do believe that they are superior and then picking it all apart. The first part is instead of thinking about how bad racism is for people of color, how bad is it for you to have to Mm. live with this, for you to have to live with defending superiority? This is the thing, like you are not being allowed to rest either because you're constantly having to find ways to justify this obviously wrong <laughs> assertion that, that there's something about white whiteness and white people, I should say, that that is entitles them or is, is better, right? So if they have all the good jobs or they're the ones that are on TV or on the radio, et cetera, that's merit, right? They got their right. own merit, you know. So if they're not having to too constantly fight that, then yeah, that frees up a lot of emotional energy. And one of the things, you know, as I talk about towards the end of the book is that, you know, and I've wrote the book before COVID. So like we were, you know, as I say, we're, our society is sick, like our planet is sick because of our actions. We have to find another way. Like this is this can't go on. Yeah. Because this constant race for superiority, which other, and I say that as well in the book, we're buying into it. Other people of colour and the capitalist system that was created by the West has spread everywhere. And so has the system of, um, you know, white skin privilege and colorism. So we buy, you know, as in people, there's, there's so much anti-blackness in Arab societies and there's so, you know, and in Indian societies and everywhere. And But then it, there's also within right. communities of, of colorism. So the whole world has now like been sort of infected. Yeah, really with this concept of whiteness, that white is right. And that the way, one way, even if you're not accepted as fully white, you know, like say an Arab, like like me, Levantine Arab, is to then assert our own superiority against people who are darker than us, you know, so against black Arabs or black Africans. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we find ourselves in. And then what's happening environmentally and with our health, like like something's got to give. And this is something that is beyond feminism you know so like this whole idea you know people will say like I'm just often described them but describe myself though as an intersectional feminist and I'm not there's no shade on Kimberly Crenshaw's theory I engage with it deeply but the feminism is not enough right Mm. we're beyond that now because our planet's dying it's all of us right it's all of us and the planet and right so how can we not only reconcile with each other mm-hmm. as humans, how can we reintegrate back in to this environment? You know, one way is to listen to Indigenous people, but instead of doing that, we're, we're ripping up their trees, right? So this is all connected. And, and so it, this goes beyond just trying to find a better feminism because it's just too much at stake now. It's always been at stake, but it's getting more and more so. But, but yeah, so yeah. I always go off track. So yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. But this is, this is really important because I'm thinking about, you know, for our listeners who I am imploring to get your book and to read it. It's so fantastic. With all the work that you poured into this body of work, this book, and for the people who are going to read it and 
be impacted by, because we know when we, people read our book, there are going to be people who read it and say, that's a bunch of whatever and throw it out. Right. Mm, But there are people who are, they're going to read it and it really wakes them up and it, it changes things for them. For those people, what do you want this consciousness to create in action? At the end of my book, I give a list of questions to white women which I then say these are not rhetorical, like I want. And when you to actually engage with these questions. Yeah, so whether right. it's a, a response that you write that I can see or whether you're just answering the questions to yourself and engaging with it. And, and that's a hard question. What do I want to see? Like I, I wrote this book as a record of witnessing. Yes. And I wrote it for women of colour. So they have a framework. Yes. So what they've experienced isn't their own moral failing or their own failing, and it's part of this bigger system that was rigged against them before they were even born. Mm-hmm. But, yes, obviously I want white people to read it to and, and to get something out. So I guess for me, I guess I'm a, the main thing is are you brave enough to give up whiteness for humanity? Because to me you can't have both. It's impossible. And I also give that ask that question to other people of colour who are not black or Indigenous. Are you brave enough to not appeal to whiteness? And, and you know, that's why I did embrace it. Well, I don't want to say embrace it. I have reservations, but I use the term people of colour and women of colour because as even though I'm not, I'm a fair-skinned person, it is because I'm saying that I don't, I will not appeal to whiteness. Right. I don't aspire to that. I recognize it. it's not only that I, I know and experience racism on my, my family and my, my ancestors and ongoing imperialism. Right. It's that I very firmly say I reject any aspiration to whiteness mm. because I will not be a part of that. Mm. That's not the world that I want. So I guess that's what I would like. And then what action comes out of that? It's up to the people. It depends who they are, how much agency they have, how much power they have. Yes. So, you know, a, a white person in power, it would be, you know, to go back to the trees, is would you be brave enough to, if you're in politics, to have been able to put a stop to that? You may have risked your job, but is this something you could have done? Mm. Because that, to me, like it's just such, it's beyond that one tree. It's just such a sign that where... Australia sits in relation to first and foremost, it's it's the Indigenous and First Nations. Yeah. This has been a really incredible conversation. There's actually so much more that you write about in your book that I wish we could dive into, but I'm also, it's also important to leave more to our listeners to go and explore for themselves. We don't want to give them everything. Yeah. You did an incredible job. Well, thank you so much. And I will say like when I first, I mean, I wrote this book literally because women of colour asked me to. I had no intention, you know, but because that article went gangbusters and women of colour of various backgrounds on Twitter mostly saying, okay, now that you've done, you've set off this little bomb, like are you just going to let it go back to normal or are you going to keep this conversation going? And I was just like, "Uh, what do you mean? And they're like, you get to write a book. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Is there a book in this? And first I was like, and all this was going on on Twitter. I'm like, okay, I know I could do an anthology and I could edit it and that way other women of colour can tell their stories. But then the response I had to that was, that might be very beautiful and moving, 
but is that going to change policies? Is that going to change people's minds? And so I was like, I see what you mean. Yes. So I did it, you know, I was like, well, I do have an obligation now because I am now in a position of privilege where I, I know that if I did say I want to write this book, I could. Right. So I felt to me that it had actually become a duty and an obligation, not in the sense of, oh, God, but an obligation of like, this is my way of, of giving back. And, and right. So, yeah. I see it as you uh, answering the call to your good ancestorship. Yeah. This is something that is out in the world. Nobody can ever put it back. You know, it's yeah. it's out there now and it will always be there. And it is a witnessing record, as you say, not only of people's real life stories, but also of, like I've said, like connecting the dots throughout time to see how mm. this is all connected. So I just really, I really want to thank you yeah, for well, thank the you. time, the energy, the emotional labor, the research, the honoring of so many different stories across the world, people who have been impacted by colonialism and white supremacy it's just an incredible book. And I really want everyone to get it. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me to, to talk. And I know I, I rambled, but I, I was going to answer that really quickly and say, when I started the book, I was thinking, is there a book in this? How mm. can I write a whole book on this? <laughs> but then in the process of research, I was like, oh my goodness, how can I only write one book on this? Like wow, yes. The history not only of what has happened, but of resistance and, and all the women and, and, and men of colour too who have resisted and written back and spoken back. And so I wanted to honour that as well. Thank you. So, yeah, there's definitely more than just a book in it. So Well, I can't yeah. wait to see, you know, what comes next for you. I know that Thank there's you. so much Thank more inside of you and I can't wait to read it all. Our final question, Ruby, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Yeah, so it's about what I said earlier. It's about witnessing and speaking to what you see within, you know, what the parameters you have. And, and so, as you said, my book is a contribution to that. So in, in the sense of what I'm trying to do to be a good ancestor with this book is to bring back light on what, women and men before me mm. have said and, and have done to resist, mm. to bring that back out. You know, I, I um, epigraph or the dedication on my book is for the forgotten ones. So to me, to be in an ancestor, a good ancestor, is to remind the forgotten ones that they're not forgotten and that maybe to lay the groundwork so that there is no more sort of silencing in the future. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you, yeah. Ruby. <laughs> I had a different one, but it doesn't seem appropriate anymore after this discussion. So, yeah, so thank you. Though. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show. And, yes, everybody, please go get this book. You will not regret it. Thank you so much. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. 
Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.